Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our Sunday service. Our topic this week from Rays of the One Light is a very beautiful one and something that Swami Kriyananda very much exemplified in his own life. Truth invites, it never commands. Truth is one and eternal. Realize it, oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Free will is a basic principle of life. God never coerces. He invites us to live in such a way that we find fulfillment in ourselves. If we refuse to live rightly, Paramahansa Yogananda taught, God simply says, I will wait. We have eternity to live. In that eternity, we live as we choose, in self-created darkness, a darkness as intense and as long-lasting as we choose, or in the infinite light, the true self, which is God. Jesus Christ in the Beatitudes offered a beautiful example of God's way of inviting mankind to seek perfection, not by commanding, but by offering his human children the incentive they need to choose the right of their own volition. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In each of the Beatitudes, Jesus explains the blessing attendant upon observing it. The divine way, similarly, for each of us, is not to do violence to our own natures. Spirituality must be attained naturally. It can never be attained by force. The Bhagavad Gita says in the third chapter, even the wise behave in accordance with nature as it is manifested in them. Of what avail then is suppression? The scripture then goes on, however, to explain that this doesn't mean we should surrender to the dictates of our lower nature. Rather, it emphasizes our need to aspire to the heights. But each of us in accordance with his own nature and not in imitation of anyone else's, offering ourselves up for purification by divine grace. Desire, whatever form it takes, so the Bhagavad Gita explains, should be resisted, even if only mentally. Quote, Attachment and repulsion to sense objects, both of these are universally rooted. No one should accept their influence, for verily they are man's enemies. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh.
Good morning, everyone. I'll begin by reading from Whispers from Eternity, which are beautiful prayer demands by Yogananda. This is the prayer demand. Make me feel that everything is joy. I am the foam of happiness spumed out of the sea of thy joy. I am the ocean of life bounding with the billows of joy. Endless eddies of my laughter spread through all hearts. When the time comes to depart, I will retire to wakeful sleep on thy bosom. In thy infinite joy, a ripple ever dancing with billows of all joy, I am a bubble of joy, struggling to burst and unite with the ocean of joy. I feel thy joy in all things. Make me a lighthouse of joy also, guiding storm-tossed vessels of life to safety on the shores of thy joy. Let every vine of my activity bear large grape clusters of thy joy. Let me drink the divine wine pressed from the grapes of all life's little joys. Beautiful. Well, this is a fascinating topic today the, um, that God invites, he never commands, never demands. The interplay between our free will and desires and our growth toward ultimate joy, ultimately coming back to the realization of who we are now, who we have always been, but are going through a period of a senior moment of being a little bit forgetful. In fact, a whole lot forgetful of who we actually are. The great ancient scripture of yoga, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, begins with a fascinating, basically an equation. He says, yoga chitva vritti narod. Yoga is the neutralization of the whirlpools of chitva. And in some translations that's translated as mind stuff. But Master translated it in a way that's much more helpful for us. He translated it as primordial feeling. So Patanjali is saying that we automatically go into union with God when the whirlpools of primordial feeling or likes and dislikes or as it said here, attachment and repulsion, when those whirlpools are neutralized, then we automatically are in a state of yoga. Then I've always loved the next two verses. Then Patanjali says, at that time, when those whirlpools are neutralized, the seer rests in his own self. And the next one, at all other times, the seer is uh, subject to the permutations of the waves of consciousness or the waves of, of uh, permutations of the world. So this resting in our own self can only take place when we finally neutralize all of those 
desires, likes and dislikes, and the heart will never ever feel at rest. We will never feel at rest until we satisfy that. And so the only way we can ever get out of the waves, the ups and downs, the permutations, is to neutralize those primordial feelings, those primordial desires of the heart. Now, I say heart because chitwa, that element of feeling nature, resides primarily in the heart chakra or in the energy around the heart. And so neutralizing that is, one could say, the whole of the spiritual path. But it's a very, very, then we get into a very, very complex interaction because we did not start this ball game. God started it. He's the one who created creation. He's the one who created the primordial feelings. He's the one who created attachment and repulsion, likes and dislikes, all of the aspects of delusion. And so those are universally rooted. We didn't create those as individuals, but we're subject to that interplay. And being subject to it, it's our job because when we come into the human level, we are given free will. So it's our job to use our free will ultimately to neutralize those waves, uh, those whirlpools of likes and dislikes. But we can't do that, one could say we can't do that directly. We can't just say, okay, I think I'll neutralize everything. It just does not work that way. As long as we're in the dream world, as long as we're in the manifestation, then we are subject to the waves of the ups and downs of the permutations. Creation cannot be in existence without duality. As Master said, he would take people to a movie theater and, and have them watching the movie and then in the midst of all the excitement, all that most exciting part, he'd tap them on the shoulder and he'd point up to the beam of light coming from the projection booth and he'd say, see, it's all a play of light and dark. So on the screen of what we think of as reality, it's all a play of duality. Without the light and the dark, there couldn't be images on the screen. If it was all light, it'd just be a blank screen. If it was all dark, you couldn't see the screen. There'd be no drama. So as long as we're in this drama, there's going to be this duality and there's going to be, in the midst of that duality, the attachments and repulsions, the likes and dislikes of this primordial feeling nature. And so our job is not to stop that, but rather to refine it. As the great saint said, we have really only, Lahiri Mahashaya, we have really only one choice, to love God or not to love God. That's kind of the extent of our free will. Ananda Moy Ma put it another way. She said that we're as if on a train and our karmic tendencies 
are moving us along a certain path. Uh, God's whole, the way he created the drama is moving us along a certain path. But we have, while we're riding on that train, the ability to move to the front or move to the back of the train. That's how much free will we have. Now, when I first heard that, I must admit, my mind wanted to argue with that a little bit. I thought, well, it sure seems to me that we have a whole lot more free will than that. We have a whole lot more freedom of movement than that. You know, the, are we really just on a track and it's all determined? Seems like we can determine whether we move or not. Well, let's try this experiment. I'm going to ask you just for a moment to sit still, relax, get the body really relaxed. Now, I want you for just 10 seconds to try to remain absolutely without moving. Okay, now I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm going to just ask you kind of to rate yourself. I remained really still. I didn't move at all. I remained pretty still. I moved a little bit, but not very much. I wasn't very good. I moved around up quite a bit. Or finally, I was moving so much that we aren't even going to discuss it. Okay, now just mentally place yourself in the midst of that. Okay, now, were you on a train track or not? This is a trick question now. For all of those who said anything except I was moving so much, we're not even going to discuss it. The rest of you aren't even in the ball game if you thought you were still. For one... We're sitting in this room and the earth is spinning. And so it's rotating and every day it rotates once. Now that rotation means that you're moving about a thousand miles an hour. Now you don't perceive that because the chair you're sitting on and the people next to you in the room and everything else is moving that same thousand miles an hour. But okay, so you weren't sitting still without movement. You were moving a thousand miles an hour. But we aren't just rotating. The earth isn't just rotating. It's also going around the sun in a big orbit. Now that movement, that's 66,666 miles an hour. So you were moving a thousand miles with the rotation and about 67,000 miles with the orbit around the sun. That isn't it. The solar system is in the outer formation of the galaxy, a spiral galaxy, and it's moving around. Add another 420,000 miles an hour that you're moving. And that isn't enough because the galaxy itself is moving around. Add another 220 million miles an hour. So while well, you thought you were holding really still, you were actually moving almost 3 million miles an hour. 
So no wonder you get tired at night. <laughs> but, so let's come back to the question, are we on a train track or are we not? The amount that we actually control with our conscious mind of what's going on is so tiny, tiny, tiny. It isn't the tip of the iceberg. It isn't even the dusting of snow on top of the tip of the iceberg. It's the thinnest layer of the molecule on top of the dusting of snow on the tip of the iceberg. And we think that we're in control of the whole thing, that we're in control. We basically have one choice, to love God or not love God. The rest is pretty much determined for us. We couldn't stay alive without all these automatic processes. We don't think about breath. We don't think about the bodily processes that keep us alive. How's your liver doing? Are you, you really in control right now over how it's filtering all the stuff? Or how about the cells? Are you in control of your cells? All of that, God keeps us alive. It's all kind of automatic, and we think that we're in control, but we aren't. So really, the only thing that we have under our control is the free will to move toward God or move away. That is to stay in the permutation, whipping up the likes and dislikes, whipping up the chitwa of the heart, or trying to still it. And so the path of yoga is all about trying to still the, that movement of the heart, that likes and dislikes, that, that permutations. Now, God does that. God could come in and still everything immediately. But that doesn't sound very much fun, being a dictator like that. So he gives us a kind of a intelligence, this free will. And he does very, very simply, I love this, the way God sets it up. He puts one desire in our heart. Ultimately, it's the desire to return back to the state of rest that is attendant upon realizing who we really are, that we came from God and we will return back to God. So he puts that one desire in our heart. But when we have free will, it doesn't quite take that amount of clarity. So he puts as a substitute for that the desire to be happy. Master said everyone is motivated by the same desire to be happy and to avoid pain. So we want to be happy and we want to avoid pain. So God isn't saying don't have any desires. As long as we're in the manifested world, one could say that manifestation is a bundle of desires, is a mass movement of desire. It's just because that's the primordial feeling nature is desire, likes and dislikes. So he isn't saying quell all those desires. He's saying direct it. Ananda Ma is saying Move toward the front of the train where there is not only happiness but bliss and ultimately where the seer is going to rest in its own self. 
toward the back of the train, you're going to be whipped around by the permutations. Now God, the masters, do not enforce this. They just put this desire and then kind of let us run as we will. So we try this strategy and that doesn't work. That strategy, that works temporarily, but only very temporarily and so on. So he just lets us work with that one question. How do we be happy? How do we be more happy? How do we be more permanently happy? Finally, how do we find bliss? And so that very gentle, gentle breeze is blowing us. I read that when they did the uh, movie of... uh, um, what is the movie? I'm th- um, I want to say Star Wars, but it's not Star Wars. It's the uh, the trilogy of... Oh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Thank you. Couldn't remember it for a minute. The Lord of the Rings trilogy, that they wanted to do these mass scenes with, you know, thousands and thousands of soldiers. But they they wanted it to look a little bit natural. <clears throat> so they created a simple artificial intelligence program where, for instance, the bad soldiers, the orcs, they were given little kind of um, personalities with like five different traits. And those five different traits played out in their actions. And one of the traits was they could be either very aggressive or they could be very timid. And so when faced with danger, the very aggressive ones attacked, the very timid ones ran away. And they said that when they ran the artificial program, that there were unknown, that they didn't plan this, but there got to be little clusters of really aggressive ones that always attacked and really timid ones where the whole little cluster ran away whenever they were under attack. And we're kind of like that. We have a sort of an artificial intelligence that we're very proud of. But what it really comes down to is that we have a very simple program that says try to be happy and try to stay away from pain. And then we're allowed to try different strategies for what will make us happy and what will give us pain. And as that accumulates, as those experiences accumulate, gradually we find that moving toward the back of the train doesn't make us very happy. Making those choices in life that bring us more and more into the big waves of permutations does not make us happy. That what makes us happy is to begin to work out those permutations, to damp down those waves, to, as Master's poem said, eventually the bubble of joy wants to burst and return to the very sea of joy from which we sprang. And so when that desire in us gets to be strong, then God sends us a guide to help us refine how the path, how to do that. And so when we come into uh, the spiritual path that we're all on, we have 
gone through lots and lots and lots of attempts to be happy. All this gentle, gentle voice, this gentle wind of God calling us back to him. But now we get a guide. But that guide, he does not command. He does not force us to do anything either. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We saw with Swami that it was very, he never coerced anybody. And it was very, very hard even to get really clear uh, direction from him. He would much rather us kind of figure it out ourselves. So we would sometimes go to him and we would say, so-and-so, they are just impossible, Swamiji. Can't you tell them that they have to stop telling everybody what to do all the time and judging and being negative all the time? And Swami would say, well, let me talk to them. Then he'd have them over to dinner, tell them what a wonderful person they are, and that would be it. And it would go on for years and years and years. It wasn't that he never said that we shouldn't judge, that we shouldn't tell people what to do, that we shouldn't be negative. He would have that theme go through classes that he gave. But if the person with the problem was over in this section, he would look here when he talked. So they had the free will to say, because he would be saying, don't judge people. Don't tell them what to do. Don't be negative. And they would be sitting over here saying, yeah, he's right. <laughs> See, they would be affirming what he was saying. Whereas if he would look at them and say that, they'd say, I don't do that. I never, I'm never negative. I never judge anybody. So he was very, very gentle and subtle in the advice that he gave. It was hard to pull out from him direct advice. He would give it, but then he would watch and see what the reaction to it was. And if the reaction was, that's not my problem, you've misunderstood me. Let me explain again to you so you get a clear picture. Then he would just listen. As Master said, when people wanted to argue with him, his response was, you may be right. He didn't say you're right. He said, you may be right. Because he knew that it was no good telling people directly who weren't ready to hear it. And I'm sure you've had the same experience. So God doesn't coerce us in what he does. In fact, he's very, very almost circumspect about it. I heard a story that I'd never heard last week. We were at the Lake Shrine. And I heard a story there about uh, a new person who'd come and wanted to join the monastery. And so this monk brought this new person and Master said very gently to the monk, you know, I, I don't think this person is ready yet. And the monk said, no, no, he is Master. He's, he's really wanting to be here. So Master didn't argue with the monk, say, no, you're wrong, your perception isn't right. He said, okay. And so they were working at the lake shrine and they were planting a tree. And Master said, after they got it, you know, all the work, and it was a big tree, after all the work of getting it planted, 
Master came and looked and said, you know, it isn't quite in the right place. I think you need to move it about a foot to the right. And so they had to dig it up. And they had to dig another hole and they had to move it a foot to the right. And then Master came and looked and said, you know, it's still, try six inches back up the hill. And so this went on all day. And finally it ended up in exactly the place that it was at the beginning of the day. And so the two monks went home exhausted, or the, the monk and the new postulant or the uh, fellow that was applying. And the next morning, the fellow who was applying got up and said, you know, if this is the way this organization is run, I don't want to have anything to do with it at all. And he walked out and they never saw him again. And Master just said to the other monk, see, I told you he wasn't ready. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't ready for even the littlest test, the littlest try this, do this. Master said that he worked best, his advice was best, when he could give it by just raising an eyebrow. So see, it's our job. That wind of correction is very, very subtle. God never coerces. He just invites. He just says, the peacemakers, they're the ones who are blessed. Be a peacemaker. He doesn't say, you have to be a peacemaker. You can't do that. He doesn't put us in shackles and stop us. He just invites us to move in the right direction. And when we do, we find gradually that our happiness increases and it's more permanent and that the things that make us unhappy or are painful gradually, gradually fall away. And then more and more, all we want to do is the will of God. We just want to move that tree around wherever the guru says. And when we do, then he doesn't have us waste our time moving it around. Mainly he just gives us very simple advices to be happy, do this, do this. Mainly what he says is be in tune. Be in tune with me. See, it's our free will, what we think is free. Mainly what he says is align your free will with God's will. He said the highest prayer is, I will will, I will think, I will act, but guide thou my will, thought, and activity to the right thing in every path. And so he's just inviting us to align our will with God's will. And when we do that, we become happier and happier until we eventually merge back into him. Now the joke of it is, this is the grand, I don't know, sometimes it, it's wonderful and sometimes it's frustrating. The joke of it is, we're already united with him. All that movement of the earth spinning and the orbits and the galaxies, all of that ultimately is non-existent. It's all just an expression of his consciousness. 
Last night, just as dreams are expression of our consciousness, last night I had a dream, and it was the dream, in the dream, I was with Swami, Devi and I were with Swami, and Swami was old as he was when he, more or less, when he passed away, but he was filled with vitality. In, in this reality, as he got old, he couldn't move very fast, but in the dream I was having, he was walking very quickly and we were running to keep up with him. Now, there was that movement going on. Now, I don't know if there's a sort of a dream reality where underneath, in the dream world, the earth was doing its rotation and doing its orbit and the galaxy. I don't know whether there was all of that. But how do you stop the movement? Do you go into the dream and you change those laws so that everything becomes still, so that as potentially, I point over there because during uh, yoga teacher training, we have a banner that says Yoga Chitra Vritti Narod that hangs up there a month at a time. So how do you still all the movement of that chitwa in the heart? Does God come in and force it to be still? No. He doesn't manipulate this dream in that way. But what he does want us to do is to wake up. And when we wake up, the dream pops. And there never was any movement. I never was running to keep up with Swami. There never was a dream world that was orbiting around, spinning around and orbiting. It was all just consciousness. And when the desires of our heart become stilled, then the dream goes pop. And we realize that we never were going through all that stuff. The only thing that was going on is that God was dreaming that he was us and we were in the middle of that dream thinking that we were separate from him. Gradually, that dream character wanted to unite with him. When that desire became strong enough, then he sent us a dream guide. And when we attuned our will to the will of that dream guide, we got more and more in tune so that the desires didn't cease. They just became all unified into the one great desire for bliss, which can be only when we pop the dream and come awake. And so that's why Lahiri said, and Sri uh, Anandamoy Ma said, the only choice we really have is to want God or not to want God. The only choice we really have is to want to wake up from the dream or want to keep dreaming. And within that, the only choice we really have is to act in such a way that the desires, the permutations, the waves of chitwa quell and eventually become still or they become more roiled up and we stay embroiled in the dream. And so that's really the choice and God never, ever forces that choice on us. He gives us the free will to love him or to not love him.